Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi. It's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via telehealth. And I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, and Gut Feelings. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, we have brand new telehealth patient options now open and lots of free resources there for you as well. You could check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners... We're giving away tons of free healthy things, free signed books, free supplements, protocols that we use for telehealth patients, and also telehealth consultations. We're giving away those as well. Every single month, no matter when you listen to this episode, all you have to do for a chance to win is head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you could take a screenshot of your review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every single month, we'll be going through the messages on Instagram as well as the Apple Podcast reviews themselves, randomly picking winners every month. And then I'll reach out to you and we'll ask which healthy stuff you want. We'll send it out to you or get it scheduled for you. Let's get to today's guest. He's a longtime friend of mine. His name is Dr. Paul Saladino. Paul is a double board certified medical doctor, host of the Fundamental Health Podcast, and author of The Carnivore Code and The Carnivore Code Cookbook. Paul believes in questioning our assumptions about health and nutrition, which makes him controversial in modern medicine. He's much more interested in optimal health than in dogmatic adherence to a mainstream narrative. Paul graduated from medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson and completed his residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. After residency, Paul attained a board certification as a physician nutrition specialist. Throughout Paul's medical training, he came to one very saddening conclusion. Our Western medical system isn't helping people lead richer lives. Western medicine fails to treat the root cause of chronic illness, and doctors are only taught to treat symptoms with medications 
rather than trying to understand the root of illness. Let's get right to it. This is Dr. Paul Saladino's Art of Being Well. Dr. Paul Saladino, the time has come, man. You're here. We're talking again. How have you been? I'm doing great. It's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me back on. Nice to see you. In my mind, I call you Dr. Polly Sally D, but I have never said that out loud, but I have nicknames for people and that's mine for you. Okay. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Where did that nickname come from? Is it just, this I don't know. I, that's my the, vibe. You know, like DJ Paul, like, isn't there a Polly D that's a DJ? In my mind, you're like the medical doctor version of like just an awesome, iconic human. DJ? <laughs> all right, man. I have to, I want to pick your brain about all the things. Let's get right into it. You are a leader in these conversations that are, I think, really good. There, I, I, I'm a fan of having diverse conversations on social media, of people having informed consent, being educated, and hearing differing opinions and not being threatened by that. And you're helping a lot of people too. But because you are a leader, it's like the one that goes through the weeds first gets scraped and it causes, it's like a lightning rod of polarization on social media. I'm curious to get your thought, your hot take on this, like seeing the response on social media over the past years, what's the most controversial thing that you talk about when you post about it, that you're still surprised that this many people are kind of in an uproar about? Probably cholesterol, but I mean, the controversy never stops, man. Like, I think that there's more, there's more controversial things coming. I just, I don't know. I was thinking about this the other day because I'm sort of gathering ideas for a new book. And I just, I think that increasingly, almost anything that the mainstream health nutrition sphere thinks is good. I, I almost always think it's bad. I almost always question it and go, that doesn't make any sense. And I get it. It's complicated. I mean, reading research is complicated, but I think that I see things through an evolutionary lens and that can be a little bit fraught with problems from time to time. So it's not perfect, but I'm always thinking like, does this make sense based on where we've come from as humans? And we can talk about that. And so many of the things that are popular today don't make a lot of sense from that perspective. And I think that there's just, I love the fact that we can have these open discussions. I get really sad when on social media, people want to be kind of like divisive and not have the conversations or people who are of an opposite idea than me will not actually engage in conversations. They just kind of want to shy away. I think that the quote, friendly debates, the just the conversations about ideas are how we move this forward. And people are moving further and further away from that. Everybody just wants mm -hmm. to do their own thing and be siloed. And nobody mm -hmm. wants to have these conversations. But I think cholesterol is probably the most right now that I'm, that I'm thinking about. Cholesterol gets the most like controversial ideas. The seed oil thing is interesting, right? I think there's, there's been some people coming out recently who are definitely defending seed oil. There are some serious seed oil apologists who are vehemently defending seed oils, which is great because... Mm -hmm. This is how ideas get shared. So I look forward to some of those reasonable conversations to look at the science. And we can talk about seed oils if you want and, and yeah. you know, talk about those two sides in a nutshell. But I think that by and large, there is, I think, a movement away from seed oils now. Sweetgreen just got rid of seed oils in their, yeah. in their salad dressings. Well, they got rid of seed oils in their cooking oils and they're get it, phasing them out in the salad dressings, which is great. Maybe Chipotle will follow suit. Mm -hmm. So there's exciting things happening, I think, in the in the space around restaurant owners and mm -hmm. people, you know, understanding that seed oils are harmful for humans. 
the mainstream health position is still is the Tufts position, which is the same place that brought you Food Compass saying that Fruit Loops are healthier than, mm-hmm. than eggs. So these same people are defending seed oils. And there are some in that camp, but that's a whole separate conversation. But the cholesterol thing continues yeah. to be very controversial. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I hear you. So let's talk about these cholesterol, the myths and the controversy around that seed oils. And then it sounds like there's something that's going to be in the future that will be also controversial that you're that you're working on. Can you share that? Of course. Yeah. What is it? Like, what do you, what's up, what's up and coming going to piss people off (laughs) in the the near future? So I really have been thinking a lot and, and you know, we've known each other for a long time. I think it's very humbling to have ideas and to see your ideas shift. This isn't normal, right? When I was working in, in medicine, going through medical school and residency and working in hospitals, you basically kind of do the same thing all the time to get people the same medications, things shift slowly. But since I've been thinking about things on my own and, and health trends, things are shifting more quickly in my mind. So I think that there is this push toward longevity right now, right? There's a big thing with longevity. There are multiple people in the longevity space. They don't all think the same way, but there have been multiple books published about longevity. There are social media influencers talking about longevity and doing it in different ways. There are people spending millions of dollars and taking more than a hundred pills a day in the name of longevity. And so I kind of want to push back against that and think a little bit about how overboard some of this ideology has gotten. Because if you listen to the longevity space broadly, you may hear eat less meat, eat more plants, do lots of fasting, calorically restrict, take a lot of supplements, do ideally the aspiration is very complicated treatments, very expensive or difficult to find injections or lights or, you know, gains wave on your, on your penis, you know, things that are very difficult for a lot of people financially time-wise, or just not always proven or safe. And so I kind of want to push back against this and talk about this notion that so many of these longevity concepts, I think caloric restriction being a huge one are wildly misguided when you look at the data and so much is available to us here and now with the quality of the food we eat and just being outside in nature, mm-hmm. barefoot on the grass, in your front yard, in your backyard, wherever you live, that can help with the quality of your life now, mm-hmm. but also improve your longevity long-term. So I think that in some ways, the longevity conversation, I fear is losing the forest for the trees. And I'm going to start probably pushing back against that more. I, I'm excited for that conversation. I hear you. It can be overboard. I think it can lean itself into that sort of orthorexic, obsessive nature and more is better, right? It's like the American way. It's like uh, we overcorrect some ways where it's like we're losing loss of quality of life. No one's going to deny that the standard Western way is not good. Like we need to be supporting longevity, but we overcorrect and over do. And I think that's what you're saying here. So very astute. I agree with you. So let's talk about that caloric restriction. Are you talking about, is that, do you feel the same way about intermittent fasting? I'm assuming not the same as time restricted feeding, but you're talking about this, this sort of chronic caloric restriction. The researchers that are looking at that as, as being associated with health span and longevity. Is that right? Well, let's talk about caloric restriction. So yeah. there's, if we start with the animals that are closest to humans, which are primates, I think they're rhesus macaw monkeys or macaques. 
there were two studies, Wisconsin and the National Institutes of Aging Studies that were famous for caloric restriction. And one of them showed that caloric restriction extended lifespan in primates. This is the species closest to humans that we actually have data on. We've never done a long-term study on humans. It would virtually be impossible, which I think makes this whole field a little bit of... But then in the other group from the National Institutes of Aging, there was no extension of lifespan with caloric restriction. When you look at these carefully, and this is never really talked about, or very rarely, when you look at these carefully, what you see is that not surprisingly, in the National Institutes of Aging study, the primates, the, the monkeys, were fed a ancestrally, that's perhaps not the right word, evolutionarily appropriate diet. It was like fruits, vegetables, and fish, which is what these animals eat in the wild. And when you calorically restrict an evolutionarily appropriate real diet, they don't live longer. <laughs> they, in fact, may have some negative effects. But in the Wisconsin study, they are calorically restricting a monkey chow which is akin to what is fed to most lab animals today, whether they're rats or mice or other animals, right? It's, it's essentially a processed food given to lab animals. So if you give someone a ultra-processed food diet and you give them less of an ultra-processed food diet, that may actually be better for them. It doesn't mean you're necessarily extending their lifespan. You might just be getting them closer to what they really were supposed to do if you give them less junk food. So this idea of caloric restriction, I think, is is important to consider because one of the main people in the space right now is doing a caloric restriction diet. He recently increased his calories from 2000 to 2200. But at the same time, he also notes that he has to use a testosterone patch because this level of caloric restriction is tanking his sex hormones so profoundly. So mm -hmm. to me, this makes no sense. And you're shaking your head and I'm shaking my head too, going, okay, these things are not separate, right? right. I think that it is misguided to say, eat less and, and eat so much less that you're calorically restricting. And then you have to take a testosterone patch. And this has happened to multiple people in the space. So right. we can, I mean, I don't, I, I'll just, I'll just mention the names. So people know who we're talking about. So this is Brian Johnson is 20, 2200 calories now using a testosterone patch. Again, not trying to be negative toward them. I just think that the ideas need to be discussed in yeah. an open, honest way. David Sinclair ran into the same thing, I believe. I mean, David Sinclair, who wrote the book Lifespan in the past, plant-based ideology has also, I think, limited calories. And he also has talked about needing hormonal supplementation or things like this because his lack of animal protein, and we can talk about the importance of that, and his lack of calories were so detrimental to his overall sex hormone profile. And basically as a human, mm -hmm. if you don't want to reproduce, that's a, that's a vital sign. Just like blood pressure, just like pulse, just like temperature. Mm -hmm. If your libido is gone, something is going wrong. And, yeah. and if you need exogenous hormones to shore that up, we have to really take a look at this carefully. Right. And it's a check engine light that this may not be optimal. If you're like me and want a healthy start to your year and every single day, but you still want something refreshing to sip after a long day at work, then you need to try hop water. I have loved hop water for a long time. A little fun fact, they're one of the first sponsors actually on The Art of Being Well for years because I love it so much. Hop water is a consciously crafted sparkling hop water that blends bold hops with adaptogens and neurotropics for added mood boosting and brain benefiting benefits. That was redundant, but I don't care because this stuff is so good. Hop water, it's spelled H-O-P-W-T-R. It's stylized. Hop water. It is a positive refreshment in a can. It has bold flavor, all-day drinkability, and won't bust up your diet. It's purposefully crafted without calories, 
Without carbs, without sugar, each can is bursting with a crisp, citrusy, piney taste made from an exclusive brewer-approved blend of hops. And hop water has so many great flavors. I'll tell you some of my favorite ones. Peach, the blood orange, mango, lime, so much more. You can't go wrong. Really can't. I love them all. Celebrate the new year with hop water. I know you'll love it just as much as I do. Right now, I have a special offer for my listeners, 20% off your first purchase. Plus, you'll get free shipping when you order 24 cans or more. To get this offer, you have to go to hopwater.com slash Will Cole. So that's the thing. You have to go there. That's H-O-P-W-T-R.com slash Will Cole. So don't wait, guys. This offer won't last long. Go now to hopwater.com slash Will Cole. Welcome to Barely Filtered, hosted by us. I'm Aurora Culpo, star of the HBO Max show, The Culpo Sisters. Don't tell my sisters I said so. I'm a recently divorced mom of two living in Los Angeles with my ex-husband. I'm part granola mom, part glamorous jet setter. I'm Kristen Gaffney, also a mom, a startup nerd who modeled for Sports Illustrated Swimsuit and the founder and CEO of Super True. I always like to microdose my coffee before I hit up carpool. Welcome to Barely Filtered, our safe space. (laughs) Here, we discuss health and wellness, becoming a grown-ass woman, and what's going on in this crazy world. And while we don't agree on everything, we do agree on this. We We want want you to to live live your best best life. So we're differentiating here between chronic caloric restriction, like lowering your calories and eating in a caloric deficit and time-restricted feeding. Do you see those as separate or are you not a fan of intermittent fasting as well? So I have some concerns about intermittent fasting as well. I know. Let's talk about it, man. These are different things, right? So this is chronic caloric restriction. And then intermittent fasting is this idea of compressing uh, time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting. These terms get thrown around a lot. This is compressing your your food into a certain window. So when I think about humans, and this, this, again, this flies in the face of a lot of what we're thinking about today. I don't know if this is because we were settled by some sort of puritanical culture, you know, you know, in our history, but yeah. our ethos, yeah. our ethos is kind of, and you see this, if it hurts, it's good. It's an ascetic sort of, it's an, it's very yeah. ascetic, right? Yeah. If it hurts, do more yeah. until your legs break. Like you should run until your legs break. And we can talk about over-exercising as well. And again, this is not, I'm not trying to be critical of any person. I just, you see these ideas out there. And so I think that if we use, and again, we're, we're right back to sex hormones. If we use things like sex hormones and other, I guess, lab metrics as objective guides, it gives us a little bit of an idea. We actually have an engine panel and we're looking for check engine lights coming on. So I think that too often when people start doing this time-restricted feeding, they will, if they carefully are watching, they'll see changes in these sex hormones and changes in these things, which means they're doing it too much. Now, I think that sometimes with fasting, people do have improvements perhaps related to gut flora and endotoxin, because some mm-hmm. of the things we're putting in our gut are increasing this lipopolysaccharide. I mean, endotoxin is a huge, huge problem. There's so much literature suggesting that if you are moving more endotoxin into your body because of the diet you're eating, and there's, there's a little asterisk, there's a nuance there that we need to talk about. This is connected with more atherosclerosis, more dementia, more cancer, everything bad. So I think that fasting helped people sort that out. But I think that long-term, humans should not fear eating food. Yes, and yes. I think that the other, the other check engine, like the other metric that people need to be aware of is thyroid hormone. And not just, you know, this because you're a doctor, but 
not just TSH, right? And this gets a little technical, but we have T3 and T4. And T4 is not really active. So you have to look at the conversion between T4 and T3. And we know that with, I think that with limitation of carbohydrates and anyone that knows my history knows that, look, I have been keto in the past. I wrote a book about the carnivore diet and then kind of evolved my understanding of these things. And so glucagon is chronically active if you are not eating enough carbohydrates. When you go from eating carbohydrates to doing keto or limiting carbohydrates, you will activate multiple, quote, stress hormones, cortisol, epinephrine, glucagon, and others, potentially aldosterone as well. And so over time, the cortisol, the epinephrine probably are attenuated, but the glucagon must always stay there. And this is kind of a stress hormone also, and glucagon is inhibiting that conversion of T4 to T3. So if we look at sex hormone metrics, and these are going to be slightly different between men and women, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, basically across the board, different ratios for men and women, but also T4 to T3 conversion and thyroid hormone. These are like two kind of really good needles. You know, if you have an older car, one of these cool cars where you actually see the needle go across. And a lot of them are now digital needles. I think I have a car that has a digital needle now on my car. These are like the digital needles on your car going, this is my RPMs. This is my speed. And, and you can really tell if you look at those two things, what you're doing. And I think so often we think that we're doing good for our bodies, but we're actually causing them to be overstressed and overburdened. And we'll start to see that conversion of T4 to T3, the active thyroid hormone, which is essentially I think probably the closest thing you're going to get to like, how well are you a wellspring of life? Like how hot is your fire burning? And you want that fire to be burning hot. You want to be a source of energy. You want to be a bright light. Like if you had a light in your house, right on a dimmer, you want that light to be bright. You want to be sharp. You want to have a sex drive. You want to have energy. You want to have strength with your kids. You want your lights turned up. You don't want to see that light gradually turning down in the name of something that is probably an empty promise. You don't want that T4 to T3 conversion to go down. You don't want those sex hormones to go down. And so I think that too strict time eating windows, too much intermittent fasting, too much fasting in general, too much ketosis, it it, it pushes it all in the wrong direction. So again, Yeah. yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, and that's why I called my third book intuitive fasting, because I think of, again, it's this overcorrection, more is better. It's like that this ascetic, ascetic, like punishment, like self-flagellation where a a wellness tool can be, it can be an eating disorder disguised as a wellness tool. And I think that a lot of time you're so right, the under conversion of T4 to T3, sex hormones being impacted. But I think that when you're dealing with inflammatory GI issues, autoimmune problems, metabolic issues that I see a lot clinically, and I know that you have a lot of experience in that population, is I would just want to make sure we're looking at the context here, is that you still see a more, let's just say strict, for lack of better words, like a pure carnivore diet as a more of a ketogenic approach or intermittent fasting that can bring about ketones. It's a tool within the toolbox, but more isn't always better. And you can use it therapeutically for a time, but then evolve from that. Is that a fair summarization of what you what your thoughts are? Yeah, I think that it's, let's say it's powerful medicine to be used carefully and can easily be overused. And I think that's pulsing, f- flexible, a cyclical approach. Uh, I found to be, I'll just say my experience with patients and looking at labs, when you have all things remaining equal and you have people that are eating a nutrient dense, bioavailable, like clean foods that love them back. And you've then, I've seen so many cases of people then use that time, that cyclical intermittent fasting as a tool within their toolbox. Once they've got the food underway, we're never trying to fast out of a poor diet, but then they take, I've seen it being used cyclically, a great enhancement or boost to what they're doing. 
while being mindful. You're right. While being mindful of these hormones, because it's a hormetic effect in the body and more stress isn't advantageous. Yeah. So this is interesting. This idea of hormesis, I think it gets deep. And I think that there's, you know, hormesis is a concept that's really only been around since the 1960s. (laughs) I think that a lot of us believe, and I did, hormesis. And what's funny, Will, is that whenever I talk about hormesis online, doesn't get a lot of engagement. I think it's it's complicated word for people. A lot of people don't know what this means. It's essentially this like a little bit of a poison makes you stronger. There's the idea, the concept of hormesis is kind of this U-shaped curve, small amount of stress, not good, medium amount of stress, probably ideal, too much stress, maybe too much for the organism. But this is really just a theory. And there are other competing theories like Hans Selye's theories, which is that it's also possible that stress is just simply cumulative. And that hormesis, again, this gets kind of in the weeds and I don't want to bog people down too much, but I'm also not convinced that that purposefully creating stress at any juncture is a good thing, right? That I think that probably in the book, there will be some discussion, however high level or or detailed about hormesis and kind of questioning this. So just Mm -hmm. to give a little bit of history. So we used to think that like heavy metals were hormetics because originally we thought, well, mercury turns on a lot of the same pathways that sulforaphane does. Mm. So sulforaphane being this isothiocyanate from broccoli, a lot of people online are super excited about these type of compounds. And both of these create oxidative stress and turn on this NRF2 pathway in the body. And so, well, so does cigarette smoke, so does alcohol. So when you really get into the weeds here, you have to kind of it's challenging. It's interesting, but it, it really made me think like, maybe there is no such thing as hormesis. I'm not sure that I believe in hormesis anymore. Well, interesting. Which you're, is you're pretty agnostic. Yeah. You're agnostic now. You're going to, you're, you're going to convert people right now. So, but I mean, let, let me push back a little bit or get your thoughts. I'm curious about yeah. it because I know you're a fan, or at least you were at one point, a fan of cold plunging, cold therapy. I think of that as a stress in the body or sauna therapy or even exercise, like picking up heavy things. These are stressful things that make your body more resilient. So I agree, like maybe the pathways and mechanisms or the labeling of a term, maybe it is overly reductive, but for lack of better terms, those are all pulsed micro stressors that have been shown to be beneficial. Maybe the mechanisms of how how it's helping us is remains to be seen. But what are your thoughts on these things that people are labeling as hormetic therapies. Yeah. 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 This is interesting. So I haven't really talked about this on podcasts yet. You're getting the, getting the raw, the raw real thing here. Uh, So I'm concerned about sauna and cold plunge actually. And I think that unfortunately, you know, this is something I'll probably have to talk to some of my friends about and, and really sit down and have some really honest conversations with them. But that's what this is about, right? Trying as humans to not be too tied to ideas. And, And I think that there is some something that happens in our brains at the level of dopamine. There's been so much talk about neurotransmitters, dopamine, norepinephrine, especially dopamine. I think dopamine is just like the molecule of 2023. Thanks to Andrew Huberman popularizing this in such an elegant fashion. But I think that there are negative consequences at the level of dopamine to having your beliefs challenged and to changing your mind. And so I think that as humans, we need to appreciate or just be honest with ourselves and realize that we are all kind of wired to not change our minds. This is how potentially neurobiologically, how we stayed in tribes, that if the tribe was doing something, that's what we were doing. And, and so today to consistently find myself being contrarian, I think, oh boy, nobody's going to like this. But with regard to that, I'm not a fan of cold plunging and sauna anymore, really. I think that, as you mentioned, these are sort of 
the epitome, or these are paradigmatic, these are paradigms of, of hormesis, but I think that they're potentially also being misinterpreted. So at the level of sauna, you have cortisol being raised from sauna. And this is cortisol is a pretty negative hormone. It's a negative hormone for humans, except under certain circumstances, right? You have this diurnal variation in cortisol to wake you up. And we use cortisol between meals, but it has a lot of negative effects on the human body in terms of the way we partition nutrients, the way we metabolize certain things. And so like cortisol, long, we know what long-term excess cortisol looks like. It looks like Cushing syndrome. It looks like moon facies. It looks like all sorts of problems. It looks like a type of diabetes. It looks like insulin resistance and fatty liver. Now is more cortisol benign. It gets into some weeds here that are complicated. So just know that I don't think anyone would debate that sauna increases cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And this is the conversation that I need to have with Andrew Huberman soon. You know, it's just like, Hey, are we really sure this is so benign? People think that sauna is benign based on a series of studies from Finland, looking at cardiovascular outcomes. And it's, it's not necessarily the heat that's beneficial, right? So there's a potential that there's not a hormetic effect here, that the benefit of sauna is the same benefit that you get from going for a walk, which is that I, when I was in residency in Seattle, I used to go in the sauna. And I would call it, this is the executive workout, right? If I just didn't really want to work out, I could just go in the sauna and feel like I worked out. Well, yes, you are getting vasodilatation. You are pushing your heart. You are moving things around. So it's mm -hmm. possible that the benefits of sauna have nothing to do with the heat. And so you can separate those benefits from this excess cortisol that you get from the heat. You are essentially cooking yourself in a sauna and people pass out. They have major issues. You can, you can really hurt yourself in a sauna. You're in an oven, right? Mm -hmm. So is it possible that the benefits are okay, these people in Finland are using this as a surrogate for a walk. And I think that we just need to have honest conversations about that. Like, mm -hmm. is it possible the cardiovascular benefits are something like 30 minute walk around the block and that's what you're doing with a sauna? Is there a benefit to sauna in someone who's already doing exercise, right? Mm -hmm. So this morning I got up, I went surfing for a couple hours. And I, I think that for me or someone who's already in the gym, already walking, already exercising, I'm not convinced. And again, I, I kind of gave the disclaimer at the beginning of this and you, you were like goading me into this. I'm just not convinced that in those people, sauna has more benefit and could potentially be a negative. Yeah. And then also you have cold plunge, right? So you get in a cold plunge, you just fell through a frozen lake. Your <laughs> stress hormones are through the roof. Your epinephrine is sky high. And these are, these are not debated things. I mean, people talk about this all the time. Yes, you come out of a cold plunge and you feel wide-eyed and you feel ready to go because you almost just died. You almost just died. You basically fell into a like. Of course, your body's going to feel that way. And we just need to be careful that we're not assuming that this is beneficial for humans. I mean, epinephrine is another stress hormone. And so I'm just, I'm beginning to kind of, I haven't really talked about this in social media yet. So hey, I, I love that we have this exclusive with you, my friend. We all have busy lives these days and don't want to waste a day recovering from a night out, you know? And I realize not everybody, is living the sober life like myself. So I'm a pragmatist. As somebody that consults patients every day, gets people healthy, you want to be realistic, meet the person where they're at. A product that I love that really helps our telehealth patients out is Z-Biotics pre-alcohol. So let me tell you about this product. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, Alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. Super fun, right? It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. So pre-alcohol produces an enzyme that breaks down this byproduct. 
This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. This year, I want you to form more sustainable and better habits. This is not an all or nothing approach, guys. This whole show is about having a grace and lightness to wellness. So Zbiotics allows you to enjoy your nights out in moderation while working towards this goal of better habits. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com slash willcole to get 15% off your first order when you use code willcole at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, which you won't be, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash willcole and use code willcole at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. JS Health Vitamins is a science-focused vitamin and wellness brand that provides targeted formulas to help you meet your personal health goals created using the highest quality ingredients backed by research. This line was designed in Australia and created by expert nutritionist Jessica Seppel, which we had Jessica on the podcast a while back. So go back and listen to the episode. You're going to learn so much from her if you haven't heard our conversation. But she has this amazing brand, JS Health Vitamins. And she has a formula for all your needs from skin health, digestive health, stress, sleep, hair growth, and so much more. So start the new year off right with JS Health Vitamins. Did you know not all magnesium supplements are created equal? Advanced Magnesium Plus from JS Health Vitamins contains three forms of bioavailable magnesium. Magnesium glycinate dihydrate, magnesium citrate, and magnesium amino acid chelate. This formula was carefully designed to support muscle relaxation, recovery, energy production, nervous system function. Look, as somebody that looks at labs throughout the day, magnesium deficiency is ubiquitous. Another formula I love from JS Health is their mood plus emotional balance. This contains clinically studied saffron. This has been proven to support a healthy mood balance, deep sleep, and calms the mind. If you're struggling with any nervous system dysregulation, you have to check out that Saffron formula. So they have these two products and so many others. So visit us.jshealthvitamins.com slash willcole and use code willcole at checkout for 20% off your first order or subscription. I look, I, I'm going to, my thoughts are here again, seeing a lot of things remaining equal. I'm saying not in the research world, but just in the clinical world of people at in monitoring and coaching these people. And maybe that's the variable. Maybe it is like some, a doctor that's monitoring these things and managing these things and like lowering it down, which we decrease things or don't use them at all for some people. I'm not saying these are universal tools. We're talking about very specific people, but I have seen both of these used properly be amazing tools for people. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts here is that I also can see cortisol levels raise when I have patients doing weight training. So are, are you not a fan of that? Like at what point are we going to say, like, where do we draw the line that raising cortisol at times is a bad thing? I think you have to get kind of specific about how much the cortisol is being raised and how far into the post-exercise work we are. So going back to like the keto piece, there's a lot of good evidence that if someone is eating more carbohydrates, and again, this is a shift for me in my thinking, 
If someone is eating more carbohydrates, that attenuates the post-exercise cortisol significantly, especially for strong, intense bouts of exercise. So we have to get a little bit specific, like what is someone eating? What are their macros? Are they also fasting, right? Because mm -hmm. now we're stacking stressors yeah. and is that the cortisol going up? So without actually seeing the patient and seeing the cortisol and knowing these things, I think that if your cortisol is being raised significantly after working out, there is an argument to be made that you've gone too hard, that you yeah. are again pushing. And I think that it is possible to get benefits from exercise that do not significantly elevate your cortisol for long periods of time. Again, the baseline matters, how much you're sleeping matters. Mm -hmm. Are you fasting? Are you doing keto? Are you limiting carbohydrates? These are all things that add stress to the organism and I think mm -hmm. can be problematic for humans. And then you're going to see that cortisol go up and up and up. And I think that's pushing it in the wrong direction. Now you got someone sleep, you don't over-exercise, right? They're not over-exercising. You give them a lot of carbohydrates and we can talk about how many and the cortisol will be attenuated and the muscle recovery is improved and their hormones look better after the exercise. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting. Again, this all flies in the face, like I said, yeah. of the, of the mainstream thinking right now, which is do fasted workouts, do David Goggins style, blow yourself out. I mean, I heard Rhonda Patrick on a podcast the other day say she was talking about some research. And again, all respect to Rhonda, just talking about the ideas. She was just saying that, okay, if you don't get a good night of sleep, you tend to be more insulin resistant, fair. And exercise improves that. And so she said, oh, okay, I'm paraphrasing her. She said, basically, that means that the worse you feel, the more you should work out. And if essentially, I'm really, I'm trying to represent her honestly here, the worse you feel, the more you should work out. And if you feel good, you shouldn't work out. And I thought, okay, we've lost the plot completely here. If you didn't sleep well, if you're fasting, if you have a, a lot of things going on with your kids and you're super stressed, it's okay not to work out. You're going to mm -hmm. be fine. You know, like I think that this idea of stress being good for the human really needs to be honestly considered because there's a lot of research and reasonable thinking to suggest that we are way overdoing it with a lot mm -hmm. of this stuff and we're hurting ourselves and we just yeah. need to back it off. Yeah. And just think like what this is, this, this is the interesting part of the conversation. Well, what is the other side of this? What are the things that help us get rid of that? Right. Decrease some of the allostatic load to use a technical term. And there are things like nutrient rich foods, carbohydrates, which is, which is a, a bad word in some, it's a four letter word in some circles. Now sleep, you know, these things are, are critical mm -hmm. and we can talk about those. So th these are the, these yeah. are like anti anti-stressors. Yeah. And that that's incredible because I think that it's been like yeah. under, underemphasized how valuable those things are in terms of mitigating yeah. the harmful effects of everything else that we might be doing by choice or by, you know, without choice, just things happening in our lives. Right. I, I mean, look, I, I appreciate you, man. I think that you are not, you're always provoking thought and you're coming from a place of curiosity. And, and I do think that there's, you're onto something on the fact that across the board, we like to overdo things and overcorrect. So I think there's something there of saying more isn't always better. And I'm, I love it. I think it's great. If we could go to the cholesterol, like you mentioned it being the most controversial we've talked about it on the podcast, you're talking to an astute group of listeners right now, but like, what are people getting wrong about cholesterol? Why is this still controversial? Well, I mean, it's controversial because there are really smart doctors like Peter Atia who believe the opposite. And again, total respect to Peter Atia, but I disagree with them on cholesterol. Now this is nuanced, right? When we're talking cholesterol, we have LDL, low density protein. We have VLDL, we have chylomicrons, you have triglyceride rich lipoproteins. You have, it's just, let's just talk about LDL and make it simple. I mean, some people want to use the term ApoB containing lipoproteins, but it's essentially just talk about low density lipoprotein. And what it boils down to is 
the notion or the question of is more LDL, is more low-density lipoprotein in your circulation, in your veins and arteries, because they're a continuous circulation, is that always a bad thing? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the data, there are many studies which show that in essentially a log linear fashion, if you decrease LDL cholesterol, your risk of cardiovascular disease goes down. And so with the, and this is not a small number of studies. These are some statin trials. These are intervention trials. These are PCSK9 monoclonal antibody trials, which is Repatha. There, there's many trials here that show this. And so I think that this essentially very consistent relationship leads very smart, well-intentioned people to believe that LDL causes atherosclerosis. And therefore, if you have more LDL in your blood vessels, this is always a bad thing. And this is also looking at things like Mendelian randomizations and genome-wide association studies. They all kind of track in this fashion. But I had a cardiologist on my podcast, Dr. Allo. Peter has not chosen to come on the podcast at this point, but maybe at some point in the future. And basically the other possibility when you look at this relationship is that LDL is involved in atherosclerosis, but what if it's not causal? So this is a phrase from Peter is actually necessary, but not sufficient, right? You need LDL cholesterol to have atherosclerosis. We know that in mouse models, if you knock out ApoB, which is the lipoprotein on LDL and a few other particles, VLDL, et cetera, they do not develop atherosclerosis. So you need ApoB containing lipoproteins to develop atherosclerosis. That doesn't mean that they cause atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. So let's just pause there. So imagine this, to build a house, you need wood. In most parts of the world, you need wood or concrete, but the wood and a house can get burned down by a fire, but the wood doesn't cause the fire. Mm -hmm. The concrete doesn't cause the fire, right? So you can, you can, you know, like, let's just back up. You have a fire, right? You need wood to make a fire. Mm -hmm. I guess you can make a fire out of propane gas or something, but if you're in a campfire, you need wood to make a fire. You mm -hmm. can't have a fire in the, in the forest without wood. I guess you could burn cardboard, but you get the idea. But the yeah. wood doesn't cause the fire. It's a spark. It's something else that initiates the process. And so we know that really the beginnings of atherosclerosis happen at the level of the endothelium, the, the inside blood vessels. There's a single cell layer and it's inside arteries and it's inside veins in the same way. And so there's something going on at the endothelium where the endothelial cells are being damaged. They're and they're essentially imbibing, they're, they're taking in the LDL cholesterol, they're allowing it to pass between them. And then the LDL gets into this space below the endothelium. And then you get this formation of foam cells, this pre-atherosclerotic plaque, these fatty streaks, the macrophage ingests the LDL. But there's a lot that goes on in that process. Like the LDL, to be injurious to the endothelium directly, the LDL must be enriched in essentially linoleic acid, yeah. very unstable polyunsaturated fatty acids, found in things like seed oils. And so there, there's something else going on here because if you go back to what I talked about in the beginning, and I apologize for this rant and this long explanation for people, and you look at this connection between LDL and cardiovascular disease, there was one thing I didn't tell you, which is that if you stratify a population by insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, this relationship between LDL level and cardiovascular disease looks very different. So there's something else going on here. And I think this is what most people are missing is that there's something else going on here. And very few people would debate that insulin resistance, also known as prediabetes or diabetes, are huge risk factors, perhaps the single greatest risk factors for cardiovascular disease, whether that's a heart attack, a stroke, peripheral vascular disease, whatever. But 
I would say they're causal. These are, that is what is necessary to initiate mm-hmm. endothelial cell dysfunction, immune cell dysfunction, because you have endothelial cells in the arteries and veins, and you have immune cells beneath those endothelial cells, these macrophages that are ingesting the, mm-hmm. the LDL particles. So you need, you kind of need both things. You need immune cell dysfunction so that the endothelial cells are probably dysfunctional and maybe not repairing damage. You need something to begin the process. You need the spark to make the fire. And the reason I mentioned wooden houses is because if you get rid of all the wood, you mm-hmm. won't have any fires. So if you lower your LDL super low with statins or rapatha, you will have less fires. But wood is also valuable for doing things, building mm-hmm. houses, keeping yourself warm, right? I'm, I'm extending the metaphor here. Yeah. And I would argue that, that LDL cholesterol is valuable for humans. And I think that the negative effects of lowering LDL have been not ignored, but they've been de-emphasized. Mm-hmm. And the side effects of many of these medications are de-emphasized. And so mm-hmm. getting rid of LDL is, I'm not convinced that's a benign thing. It's mm-hmm. something that we have been living with as humans for hundreds of thousands of years. LDL goes, you know, like primates. So chimps, bonobos, like all of our primate ancestors contain LDL particles. This, this is a part of our evolution for millions of years, even pre-hominid evolution. To say that this is a molecule that we can just cut in half mm-hmm. or decrease by 70% without any physiologic consequences that are negative mm-hmm. to me is misguided. And it's a little bit myopic. And so I believe that we're missing the mark here, that LDL is not the thing we should be focusing on with regard to atherosclerosis. Cardiovascular disease is a huge burden for us. We should be focusing on insulin resistance. And so often we, we don't focus on insulin resistance. Patients mm-hmm. are not talked to about what is causing their insulin resistance because most doctors don't know. Well, we don't know what's causing insulin resistance because it's complicated. And I, you and I probably have ideas about this and we can share them, but very few people, there's no drug that really fixes insulin resistance that well. There are some molecular mechanisms at play here, but mm-hmm. you can't give someone a drug to fix insulin resistance. You can fix it with diet. We know that, but very few patients that are given drugs to lower their cholesterol are also having their insulin resistance addressed. Mm-hmm. And so you're putting the car before the horse and you're, and you're, you're looking at the wrong metric. And the reason all of this matters, and then I'll let you weigh in, is because when people eat more nutrient-rich animal foods, whether that's liver or heart or grass-fed beef or tallow or butter, LDL often goes up, Yeah. right? And so therein lies the problem. And if people eat seed oils, corn, canola, sunflower, safflower, soybean, LDL goes down. So which of these is good and which of these is bad? Well, I happen to believe, and I know that you agree with me, that eating animal foods with saturated fat is healthy and eating seed oils is bad. So how can this be true, right? We have this conundrum. But if you look deeper into the research, when your LDL goes down, eating polyunsaturated fatty acids in excess on seed oils, you also get more oxidized LDL and more of something called LP little a, which is a marker of oxidation. It's kind of a sweeping molecule. It's, a, it's the cleaning crew in your body that kind of holds onto these oxidized phospholipids. So when anyone talks about LDL, LDL going up on saturated fat, they're ignoring the fact that you have less oxidized LDL and less LP little a. We know that saturated fat lowers LP little a. And when it goes down on polyunsaturated fats, when the American College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association recommend that you eat canola oil, which they do, you are increasing your oxidized LDL and you're increasing your LP little a, which are very clear risk factors for cardiovascular yeah. disease of even greater, of even greater strength, of even greater sort of magnification than LDL, no matter how you cut the data. 
Right. Yeah. No matter who you, who you are. I agree with you fully. I, I am actually very much in alignment with you here. And it's something that I see clinically all the time. And, and it's funny that you have that analogy of fire and, and wood. I oftentimes try to explain patients when I'm showing them labs. It's like, it's like blaming the fireman for the fire when you're seeing right. it. It's like, what's the larger context? The body's producing this, but why? And it's oftentimes as a repair tool, right? It's a repair tool. The body's trying to produce more cholesterol to deal with this inflammatory storm, this insulin resistance that's at play here. You all know, most of you know at least, that my day job is running the telehealth center. We've done telehealth for over 13 years. We integrate with different modalities, different aspects within healthcare. And one of those areas that we integrate into patient protocols and recommend is mental health care. Of course, we even talk about in the show, mental health is physical health. It's two sides of the same coin. And a company that has been doing telehealth in the mental health space that we love working with is Talkspace. Talkspace makes mental health care accessible and affordable. Sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? You can get a therapist through Talkspace. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and be a guiding light in your life. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within just 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home or on your lunch break at work. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and so much more. It's secure and private. It's HIPAA compliant, of course. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash ABW. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash ABW to get $80 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash ABW. The CDC estimates that there are approximately 96 million American adults, more than one in three people, have prediabetes. Of those with prediabetes, more than 80% don't even know they have it. There are so many people that are somewhere on that insulin resistant spectrum. They're struggling with insatiable cravings, hangeriness, trouble losing weight, brain fog, fatigue, low libido. I mean, it's so many people are struggling with some form of insulin resistance. And a CGM that I love in this category is from Cygnos. Cygnos can help you short circuit this cycle of insulin resistance by using data directly from your body to design a weight loss wellness plan that's unique to your lifestyle. Cygnos is the only company that combines a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, with an AI-driven app to deliver real-time glucose monitoring for optimal health and weight management. With Cygnos, you can literally see which foods cause your blood sugar to spike above reasonable levels and get real-time alerts to do a bit of exercise to bring them back down. And not just foods, but how sleep and stress and any other thing that you're doing in your life, what's your own bio-individual data? Cygnos removes the guesswork of weight loss and provided me with the tools and knowledge I needed to develop healthier habits. It combines my glucose data from the CGM or continuous glucose monitor with an AI-driven app to deliver you real-time glucose insights for optimal health and weight management. Right now, Cygnos has an offer exclusive for our listeners. 
Go to Cygnos.com, that's S-I-G-N-O-S.com, and get 25% off select plans by using code WILLCOLE today. That's Cygnos.com, use code WILLCOLE to get 25% off select plans today. All right, so we run a nuclear magnetic resonance NMR test for patients and looking at these oxidized markers, the LPA, LPA. Do you like that test? Like what labs do you recommend for patients from a cardiovascular health standpoint? So Boston Heart makes this test. It's called yeah. oxidized phospholipids right. on ApoB. And that's the best test of oxidized LDL because it corrects for the amount of ApoB. Other tests of oxidized LDL are just monoclonal antibodies. They're not very accurate. So Boston Heart does this oxidized phospholipids on ApoB. That's really the only one that I would check. And then look at LP little a. But even before that, I think you just need to look at, you need to look insulin at thyroid hormones yeah. and you need to look at fasting insulin. Yeah. And very few people do this, right? They're not looking at T4 to T3 conversion. You're not looking right. at sex hormones. You're not looking at fasting insulin. I think fasting insulin will yeah. tell you the whole story. I've never seen someone who has a low fasting insulin and is still insulin resistant. Well, mm -hmm. you just, you do not see it. And, and let's define the reference ranges for anyone that really wants to know. I think yeah. less than five micro IU per ML is what you want for your fasting insulin. Probably less than three, but less than five is pretty good. Most Americans are probably between 10 and 15. Yeah. It's not uncommon to see it above 20. And the reference range, I mean, what's the reference range when you do fasting insulin? 20, 18? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, great. I'm not a full-fledged diabetic, but yeah, you're not. somewhere on that insulin resistance spectrum already. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think that when you are on that insulin resistance spectrum, if your fasting insulin creeps above five, really above four, you're starting to have all these processes going on in your body. And you're starting to maybe have fragile endothelial cells and dysfunctional immune cells. And this is where things kind of go downhill. And that's the beginning. Now, again, let's be clear in the setting of insulin resistance, LDL does get involved in the atheroma. And in the setting of insulin resistance, it's pretty clear that less LDL leads to less cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. But we need to treat the problem here, which is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who in the process of treating insulin resistance may see that LDL go up as they're getting more insulin sensitive. And I don't think that's a problem at all. And that's mm -hmm. where I might differ from some people in the space. And that's mm -hmm. the conversation that I really want to have with some of these people and, and to look at the data in a very honest way, because like I said, there are many studies which show that if you stratify this relationship between LDL and cardiovascular disease by any metric that approximates insulin mm -hmm. sensitivity, you see a very different relationship, essentially yeah. almost no relationship between LDL and CBD or a very small relationship between LDL and CBD, meaning that as you get more LDL, you get slightly more cardiovascular disease which is probably accounted for by other things in our environment, which can create damage to the endothelium, smoking, heavy metals, diesel fumes, yeah. right? Industrial pollutants. So just fixing insulin resistance does not completely abolish the relationship between LDL and cardiovascular disease. It attenuates yeah. it massively, but there are other things in our environment that can also damage the endothelium. Right. Besides insulin resistance. Environmental toxins. Yeah, right. I mean, it's causation versus correlation. I think that's exactly what you're saying there. And you mentioned a very important thing that I not enough people talk about. I see it all the time clinically is that low T3 levels, which could be from too much fasting, too much caloric restriction, too much carb restriction inhibits cholesterol clearance. So oftentimes you can get cholesterol levels more balanced, however you want to say it, like more in a healthy uh, ratio just by getting that T3 levels up. Super important, super yeah. important. And in the carnivore community, I don't think this is talked about enough. Again, I was in this, I was one of these people who had a T3 that was kind of waning on carnivore. And before I went to medical school and residency, I was a physician assistant and I worked in cardiology. And 
some of the most striking cases of early onset heart attacks in 30 to 40 year old women were in people with profound hypothyroidism. So I would see, I would admit to the hospital, young women, right, essentially do not get heart attacks, but they would have heart attacks because they had hypothyroidism, usually due to some autoimmune phenomenon affecting the thyroid and their, their thyroid hormones go low and their cholesterol clearance is, is disordered and they, they have heart attacks as young women. So this is an illustration of the fact that like thyroid hormone, insulin sensitivity, LDL, these are all connected. Mm-hmm. Well said. So I, it's funny, I didn't put the connection to, I talked to the co-founder and CEO of Sweetgreens the other, just, I think last week on Zoom and your name came up, Nicholas Jamet. He's shout out to Nicholas. And you're part of that discussion of like seed oils and like big companies making that switch from seed oils, like canola oil, vegetable oil, sunflower oil to olive oil. But people, that's controversial. People, I've even seen it be politicized in the media where they'll be like the right wing as if like we're right wing just by talking about seed oils. Why is this so controversial? My mind goes, my thought goes to, there must be some big money behind this where they're creating this sort of tribalism for no reason. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there was an article about, you know, my friend Carnivore Aurelius in, was it Rolling Stone or Vice or one of these? And they were calling him right wing. He was like, how could he be right wing? You know, he's talking about family, having kids. He's talking about being careful with promiscuous sex. He's talking about raw milk. He's talking about seed oils. You know, I don't so much talk about the family value stuff, but I talk about, you know, I talk about seed oils and raw milk. And suddenly this has become, this has become politicized. I don't have any idea how, this is not a political issue at all. There's nothing political about this. No. No matter what your political persuasion, I think that we're, we're all trying to understand human health. But I think that it's, my suspicion is that if they can't, it's just a way of trying to discredit us, right? Mm-hmm. We are yeah, now- it's shutting down the conversation. It's pejoratives, yeah. Right wing. Yeah, it's cons- making us conspiracy there. Conspiratorial, yeah. that's what we're doing. You know, so we're back to- you know, the Kennedy assassination and they're trying to marginalize it. These are conspiracy theorists. And, you know, we all know that conspiracy theorists are super kooky. So these are conspiracy theory. The fact that seed oils are bad for you, that's a conspiracy theory. It's like, it's like, it's science. Like we're talking about, how can this, there's no conspiracies inside. We're just talking about scientific data, you know, Mm -hmm. raw milk being good for you. That's conspiracy theory. Okay. It is interesting (laughs) though. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about it. It, Like my thought is, and I've always said seed oils are inflammatory. I see it improve when people go off of it. I think it's the overconsumption of it. But then my mind goes to, and I always try to have this sort of measured, moderate approach when it comes to, okay, is it the oils in and of themselves or is it the lack of ratios? Like Americans are not eating enough of these long chain omega fats. So they're basically their omegas three, six, nine ratios are off. So if patients, if people had more of these long chain omega six fatty acids from whole foods and they had some seed oils in their life, my thought is the average person would be better off there. And they, it probably would be a negligible effect on their health. Not calling the seed oils health foods. I don't think that they're health foods, but that it kind of is a wash at the end of the day. So I'm not advocating any patients to have them, but you know, it could be a part of a like balanced, whatever, if someone wants to have those foods in moderation, is that too pragmatic on my part? What, what are your thoughts there? Should we be having zero amounts of these seed oils? It's tough, Will. Like, I think that one of my challenges with this health education is trying to understand how to best communicate things in a clear, elegant fashion that's doable for people. 
in my mind, and I think this is a foible, but also something that I can hopefully leverage for the good, it's zero seed oils. I will never eat seed oils. If I go to a restaurant and they cook in seed oils, I'm not eating anything, right? If I have children, I would not allow them to have seed oils. Like this is a big problem for humans. I believe that seed oils are perhaps the single greatest driver of chronic illness in humans. So would I let my kids smoke cigarettes? No. Now, to be fair, like I smoked a cigarette and a half when I was a kid. My dad didn't give it to me, but I was out with my skater friends and I did it. Like no child is going to get very few children in the world, except maybe hods of children. And even those children are exposed to seed oils today are going to get through their life without smoking a few cigarettes and probably getting exposed to some seed oils. But I think that there really is, I think, no good level of seed oils in the human diet. And we can just talk about briefly why I think that yeah, if you look at there. the actual, look, look at the actual production of seed oil, look at the way they're produced. There's a great video on YouTube. It has over 6 million views of how to make canola oil. You know, canola, canola is made from low erucic acid rapeseed. So there's these rape, rapeseed plants in Canada and they had a bunch of them and they were like, okay, we have to, we have to breed out this type of fatty acid. It's a monounsaturated fatty acid called erucic acid, which looks really strongly to create heart lesions in animal models and probably in humans. So this is a toxic oil that you have to remove from those rapeseeds. So you, you genetically modify those plants to get low erucic acid rapeseed. It still has some erucic acid. And if you look at Oatly, on the side of Oatly, it says low erucic acid rapeseed oil. I don't know how that sounds better than canola oil, but those are the same thing. Okay. Canola oil is an acronym, Canadian oil, low acid, right? So if you look at how canola oil is made, it's made from the rapeseed plant. They have to grind it, degum it, wash it with hexane, which is a known neurotoxin. Then they have to use sodium hydroxide. They have to deodorize it. It's crazy. So how much just actually everything else in the oil aside, how much of that hexane remains in the oil? I've seen multiple studies suggesting it's around the order of three to seven parts per million. In 1989, Perrier bottled water was pulled off the shelves for uh, benzene. Benzene is three to seven parts per million. It's another sort of organic solvent like hexane. So it's similar. And benzene was pulled for 10 parts per billion. And there's three to seven parts per billion of benzene and, and other organic solvents like hexane and benzene in these oils. So six to 700 times more in seed oils that are legal from what caused Perrier water to be pulled off the shelves in 1989. So if, even if you don't think seed oils are bad for you, you're getting, you know, the byproducts of the industrialization of the preparation of these oils. Mm-hmm. I actually just found an article the other day looking at levels of phthalates. So these are these endocrine disrupting chemicals in oils. And sadly, olive oil was the highest. And I need to look at the actual samples, but seed oils were not far behind. So nobody ever, I, we talk about phthalates in scents, like the Glade plugins, those little mm-hmm. things you put on your car. Yeah. These are scents, they're fragrances that get stuck on your clothes. You know, I'm in New York City. I go in an Uber. There's a little black ice tree on the window and it yeah. smells so much. I get out of the car and I still smell like it. Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't him, even be in that. I get just, I can't do it. Throw these it out are the phalates. window. Yeah. These are phalates. <laughs> I, I wrote them. Yeah. These are phalates, right? These are in oils and they're, they're in these, then they're endocrine disrupting. So you have organic solvents, benzene, hexane, you have phalates in oils in significant amounts. That's, we haven't even talked about linoleic acid, right? Or <laughs> oxidation of these fats. We're just talking about what's in the oil is toxic. So you wouldn't let your kid drink a soda with hexane or benzene or phthalates in it if you were savvy. So why would you give your kid chicken nuggets that's cooked in that? You know? mm-hmm. And then we can talk about the actual oil, which is a problem. Now, like I said, there are some seed oil apologists out there now, which is great because I think that informed discussion is fantastic, who will point to randomized controlled human trials of seed oils that show that they're safe. And these are mostly studies from the 1960s and 1970s 
studies like Ozzo Diet Heart, and you can think about Minnesota Coronary Study, Sydney Diet Heart Study, Rose Corn Oil Study. There's many studies, right? And there are, there are meta-analyses of these studies. And the problem with a meta-analysis is you kind of lump a bunch of studies together, and it depends who writes the meta-analysis for which studies are included and which studies are excluded. Mm-hmm. And then the, based on the results of the trials, you can sway what you think the summary of the data is. So I think that meta-analyses when it comes to seed oils are not something to look at. You have to look at every single individual trial. And if you do this, if you look at these trials, what you find is that the majority of these trials, now, Oslo Diet Heart, LA Veterans, STARS, I can list, there's a bunch of acronyms, probably had more trans fat in the control group, right, than the seed oil group. Mm. So could that skew the data? In, in Oslo Diet Heart Study, I believe the control group had 9.2% of their calories from trans fats. Wow. Now, is it any wonder then that the control group with less seed oils looks worse than the group that gets seed oil? So these, if you look at the way these studies were done, this is a time when we were just beginning to learn about trans fats. No study, no randomized controlled trial on seed oils has been done in 50 years, Will. Right, right. And the best study, I believe, is Minnesota Coronary Study, which was done by Ansel Keys, who buried the data for 16 years, didn't publish it. And then Chris Ramsden went to somebody's basement, true story, found the data and republished it, along with Sydney Diet Heart Study. And if you look at Minnesota Coronary Study, that shows that people who had more polyunsaturated fatty acids, it's the largest study, it's the longest study, and it clearly shows people who had more polyunsaturated fatty acids in these mental health institutions had more cardiovascular disease and more death. So it's pretty crazy when you look at it because we start arguing about this study is better than this study and that study should be disqualified because of this. So the human randomized controlled data is just, it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. We don't have a perfect study. We just don't. And so at that point, you have to look at mechanistic data or you, you really are forced to look at things like, well, if we give people more seed oils, they get more oxidized LDL. Well, do you think seed oils could be bad? I think so. Yeah. But the people who are seed oil apologists will say that's a mechanistic study, even though it's randomized and it's controlled and it's in humans, that's a mechanistic study, right? And we should look at these randomized controlled trials in humans that were done 50 years ago that are mostly flawed because of designs, increased trans fats in the control group, different dietary advice between the groups. So the seed oil data is just a mess. It's a mess, mm-hmm. which is why there's so much debate about this. It's right. a mess. And you wonder with the, how much money is in the food industry, if we even get a really great, you know, amount never. of, yeah, it's just not going to happen. I'd be we'll surprised. We'll never get that study. We'll <laughs> never get that study. And okay. So I guess I can say this. So I was talking to Callie Means and Callie is an interesting guy. You may have had him on your podcast. I've had his sister on, but. Oh yeah. 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 Casey. Yeah. Yeah. So Callie used to work, I believe for Coca-Cola. He's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting industry insider. He's savvy to the way that these big companies will perhaps change the narrative to try to confuse people. And Callie has talked about seed oils and this lead researcher from Tufts University, I think Callie was on some panel and he talked about how these researchers at these universities were, were funded by seed oil companies. And this isn't, this is a conflict of interest and how can they do this? And so, you know, again, back to this fact-checking, this lead researcher at Tufts University is often the gentleman who is referred to by fact-checking organizations when they say that seed oils are good, you know? And he wrote, he did a meta-analysis on seed oils that included all of these trials I talked about that had flawed control groups and increased trans fats. So his meta-analysis is completely flawed. If you look at the forest plot, it, it's, it's completely misrepresentative. Mm-hmm. Ramsden, 
who found the Minnesota coronary trial and the Sydney Diet Heart trial in the basement did another meta-analysis where he excluded a lot of those trials, you see a very different effect in terms of your forest plot. People that are kind of savvy with meta-analyses will know what we're talking about. If you're not, don't worry about all that jargon. But so this guy, this researcher at Tufts University actually called Cali Means like irate and said, hey, what are you doing? This is how we fund the studies. Why are you talking about this? But if you look at his disclosures, he's funded by, he receives funding from Bungie now, B-U-N-G-E or B-U-N, I think it's B-U-N-G-E. It's a seed oil company. Wow. <laughs> they receive funding from seed oils and, <laughs> and they that, say that seed oils are good and yeah. they're studying, we can debate this, but now he's the person who wrote a meta-analysis that's referred to by the fact checkers. And when I talk about seed oils on Instagram, I get a misinformation <laughs> tag. Well, <laughs> Dude, I mean, don't even get me started. I mean, free speech is not free speech. It's like the, the ordained speech. That's, that's, what, that's what it is, <laughs> ordained. Yeah. So- all right. I want to talk about two things. We're running out of time. The, the carbohydrates, your position has evolved for this. We've talked about yeah. that. Do you think there's a time and place for a clear, like a, a lower carb approach or a carnivore ish approach, and then bringing in carbs later? Or do you think everybody should be having carbs from whole foods like fruits right out of the gate? I love fruits. So let's talk about it. You mentioned earlier, how, how much fruits should the average person be consuming? I, it's like three different questions, but I'd like to get your take on how carbs should be used. Yeah, I think it's going to be individual, which is why it's good when people work with doctors like you who can help shepherd them through the process. If somebody is obese, you want to lose weight, you're diabetic, you're not going to tolerate carbs well. The carbohydrates didn't cause that, but you're not going to tolerate carbohydrates well. Your carbohydrate machinery is broken. So that person probably needs less carbohydrates. Now, I don't think that they should have zero carbohydrates because I think there is a threshold at which you limit carbohydrates too much and you just increase all these stress hormones, right? but they probably need to be on the lower end of carbohydrates. Now, just to throw out a number, I would say these people probably need still at least hundred grams of carbohydrates a day. So my line in the sand would be hundred grams of carbs for every human. Now, as you become more metabolically healthy and you do more exercise and you want to limit post-exercise cortisol, stress hormones, you can, you can increase those carbohydrates significantly, <laughs> significantly. I did chronometer with my food the other day and I was 400 grams of carbohydrates in a day. Wow. And I can tell you that my fasting insulin is still three <laughs> and my hemoglobin A1C is lower than most people on ketogenic diets. So mm -hmm. this is again, like contrarian, but I think that there has been a, I think that there's too much focus on blood sugar levels for people now. And it creates fear and people are using continuous blood glucose monitors, which I think are a valuable tool, but they're getting super focused on these. They use it like an aura ring, right? They don't want to eat anything that causes their blood sugar to go up. Mm -hmm. But blood sugar going up is a signal to your body of abundance. It signals insulin, which is healthy for humans, causes resorption of electrolytes at the level of the kidney, necessary for healthy human functioning to have some insulin. Postprandial, meaning after eating insulin, is not pathological do not fear it. Levels mm -hmm. of carbohydrate will vary depending on individuals. Mm -hmm. But if somebody is active and healthy, I would say, don't worry about your LDL if you're insulin sensitive and don't worry about your blood sugar. Eat carbohydrates. Eat carbohydrates. Now, the source of the carbohydrates, I think, matters. Mm -hmm. And again, this is, you know, we could do five hours, Will, but yeah. I just, I consistently see that grain-based sources of carbohydrates are much more problematic for humans. And I think that for most people, fruit, fruit juice, honey, are going to be really easily digested. Some people might have issues with FODMAPs and it depends on what you've got going on in the gut with these things. But 
that I think is the easiest thing for most people. Again, people, oh, no, no, no. The whole, we don't have time to go to the fructose thing today. We can if you want. Don't fear fructose. It doesn't, fruits will not raise your uric acid. Like mm-hmm. I need to get on a debate with Rick Johnson and David it, Perlmutter. And like, it's, it's, there's so many things we can... Yeah. I was gonna, I mean, the caveat here, context is in its whole food form, right? With fiber, yes. right? We're not talking about fructose, high fructose corn syrup, right? I mean, that's... No. Yeah. No, I'm not a fan of high fructose corn syrup. If you look at high fructose corn syrup, it's akin to seed oils in that it, it probably contains heavy metals. Mm-hmm. And because to make high fructose corn syrup, you have a highly processed industrial product. So it's mm-hmm. different, right? I don't think that people need to always have fruit with fiber. I think you can do fruit juice. I think mm-hmm. orange juice, especially if it's fresh squeezed. Now be careful because there's analyses from consumer reports looking at orange juices and a lot of orange juices contain significant amounts of PFAs, this chemical, parafluoroalkylated substances. Chemicals, chemicals, right? So they can be in orange juices. So the quality of your food matters. Make your own orange juice, juice it. Don't fear it. A lot of times when I talk about orange juice, people, they they kind of will cut and paste a keto person's idea that that's just the same as sugar, which it's not. You can look at the research. It's very clear that you give someone orange juice and health metrics improve. It improves endothelial function. It improves immune reactivity. It improves all sorts of things. It's been associated with less oxidized LDL. Mm -hmm. I mean, orange juice is clearly a health food and there's essentially zero or negligible fiber in there. So Mm -hmm. I think that if you're going to eat fruit, it's okay to eat fruit juice if it's fresh and good quality. I think that most people probably don't need to do only fruit juice, but, and again, understanding that someone who's diabetic is going to see a bigger blood sugar response to anything with sugar that doesn't have fiber in it. So now let's just pause for a moment. So there's a study that's really interesting that was done with diabetics and honey. I think it was eight weeks and they gave them increasing amounts of honey over those eight weeks. And at the end, they were giving them, I think upwards of 125 grams of honey a day. It's a lot of honey, considering that a tablespoon of honey is 15 grams. You're approaching seven to eight tablespoons of honey per day in a diabetic. And their fasting glucose went down. Well, now to be fair, their A1C went up a little bit because their blood sugar went up, but the blood sugar went up in the control group. And the difference was about, if I remember, the difference was about 10 milligrams per deciliter average between the honey group and the control group. But in the control group, the fasting glucose goes up. In the honey group, the fasting glucose goes down. I'm not suggesting that honey is the best food for a diabetic, mm-hmm. but it looks to have improved their insulin sensitivity. Yeah. Right? I love, I love me some Manuka honey, man. I have it every day. It's good yeah, stuff. I think it's great. So I think that scale the carbohydrates based on activity. You can watch all the metrics, right? Watch your T3 go up, feel better, more libido. And it takes time. Now, granted, hopefully you're doing other things right. You're getting rid of seed oils, which I think are the major problem driving the insulin resistance at the end. I'll repeat this just for emphasis. Carbohydrates do not cause diabetes. Carbohydrates did not get you diabetic. Now, people will say carbs and carbohydrates like Okay, a pizza is probably not great for you. It's going to have seed oils. A lot of people don't tolerate wheat for a variety of reasons. Fine. But fruit and honey did not make you diabetic. I promise right. you. I mean, right, there's, right, right. There's studies from the 1950s, Walter Kempner, maybe 1960s, the rice diet, which is something I would not advocate for, but I think it illustrates a point. He took people who looked essentially like the blueberry girl in Willy Wonka. They're round, they're massively obese. And he put them on a diet of white sugar and white rice. So very low fat almost entirely carbohydrates, their diabetes is reversed and they lose hundreds of pounds. You mm. can just, you can search it. So to suggest that the carbohydrates cause diabetes 
is not supported by the evidence. Now, there are nuances to the study. It's a very low-fat study. People do not want to be that way. They're, it's very hard to find that level of compliance. I don't think it's a healthy thing that we should ever repeat for people. But white sugar and white rice, two foods that I'm not a huge fan of, reverse diabetes. Mm. If, that, that, if that's all you give someone, probably because they are so low-fat that the body begins to mobilize all the polyunsaturated fatty acids, the excess linoleic acid, and other problematic things from the membranes. And once your membranes become healthy, especially the mitochondrial membrane, and know this, that when you eat more seed oils, those seed oils get incorporated into every cell membrane in your body. Probably the mitochondrial inner membrane where the electron transport chain happens is the most problematic place for those seed oils to get incorporated because it causes leakiness of the protons. So you don't have the battery in your mitochondria. Essentially, mm -hmm. your energy factories don't work well. Mm -hmm. And all those cardiolipin molecules at the cristae, the bends, start to become kind of messed up and you mm -hmm. get problems with your cell membranes. So if you put someone on a very high carb, low fat diet, the hypothesis would be that you can mobilize some of those fats from the polyunsaturated fats more quickly. And then when these people returned to a liberalized diet, they were, they were not diabetic anymore. Mm. So this is fascinating. And it's just yeah, to it like that the fruit and honey didn't get you diabetic. Right. And, and then the, you know, that theory, then it would then say you're improving insulin signaling because you've shifted the way that the fatty membranes are the functioning, the cell membranes are functioning, the receptor sites are healthier. Is that a fair way of kind of summarizing what you're saying here? That's, they didn't test the cell membranes, but I think that's yeah. the most compelling hypothesis for me that that's what's going on. Yeah. That's fascinating. Wow. Not that we would advocate just rice and sugar, but. No, I don't think it's a great yeah. diet for humans. Yeah. There's no nutrients in there, right? <laughs> right. You can, so you can create a diet like that, that can improve someone metabolically it's completely nutrient deficient. And that's important also. So you long-term, a diet of rice and sugar, to be very clear, will lead to ruin in humans. That's not a good idea. You have right. no nutrients, you know, no vitamin A, no riboflavin, no folate. There's no choline. There's no creatine. Right. There's nothing in there. But right? it poses the question why yes. and how. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. One last question before we jump into the Ask Me Anything is raw dairy. Also controversial, something that I have had as a, I grew up, I live I'm from the country. I live in the country. I used to go up to the local farmer and like pour it out and it was just raw milk. And you just put the doll, a couple dollars in the little like jar. And it's still done here in Western Pennsylvania, but it's controversial. Like some States it's even illegal, right? Which is crazy. So why is it so controversial? And why do you think more people should be looking at it? It's controversial because it's a, it's a hard food to produce at scale, right? There are a lot of foods that are hard to produce at scale. Most orange juice you get in the grocery store is pasteurized. It's hard to get raw orange juice too. And you have the same problems with raw orange juice that you have with raw milk. The, the difference is that milk comes from an udder, you know, which is near the cow's butt, you know, and it's peeing and pooping. And if the dairy farmer is not doing it intentionally and cleaning the udders, it's very easy for it to get contaminated. Now, why should we even care? I think that the reason it was interesting to me is because historically, I think dairy was a major trigger for me pasteurized, traditional, industrial dairy, major trigger for me. Switching to raw milk was like a breath of fresh air. Mostly I get raw goat milk now, but raw cow's milk is great. There's all sorts of different raw milks. Raw horse milk is consumed in some parts of the world. Camel's milk is common. Some people have said that camel's milk is the most similar to, to human milk. And so there's an interesting question here. And, and I was really fascinated by, this is epidemiology, but there are interventional studies also that show compelling data. But the epidemiology, pretty clearly and repeatedly shows that kids who grow up on farms or off farms, so it's not the farm, who drink raw milk have lower rates of all the allergic diseases. So asthma, eczema, hay fever when they're adults. That's interesting because I have asthma, eczema, and hay fever. 
maybe raw milk would have helped me as a kid. These were, these were my major struggles as a child. I was atopic. I had eczema. I had asthma. I was over-medicated by my well-intentioned father, who's a physician. I had seasonal allergies. And there's something going on with a raw dairy from a mammal that can be beneficial potentially. I think there's a strong argument for a human. If you look at the data on raw milk, also it, it seems to improve respiratory tract infections, decreasing respiratory tract infections in kids. It affects even women in pregnancy can have different things. Now, raw milk is a super controversial thing in pregnancy, but again, it's there are studies that have been done on this. And so there is something valuable, I believe, for humans about raw dairy, probably the whey protein. I think the casein protein is probably less immunogenic when it is raw. We know that when you heat a protein, it changes shape. It's probably more immunogenic when it's heated. This is probably accounting for the problem with A1 versus A2 milk. Even A1 casein may not be a problem when it's raw. Apparently, even human breast milk contains A1 casein. I need to confirm that. But there's something interesting about raw milk. There are many, many different types of bacteria. I think it's 700 species of naturally occurring sort of commensal bacteria in a mother's breast milk that go to their baby. And similarly, from a cow's udder into the raw milk, there are a similar number of bacteria. So it's an information and miraculously, perhaps not that surprisingly, across mammals, milk appears to be pretty darn well tolerated when it is not heated and pasteurized. Yeah. And even with lactose intolerance, and this is a really interesting thing, I'm lactose intolerant well, but I can drink over a liter of raw goat's milk or close to that with raw cow's milk a day with no problems. I don't have diarrhea. I don't have loose stool. I don't have gas bloating or farting. And from what I understand, talking to farmers, people who go to these milk immunology conferences, there are bacteria that naturally occur in the raw milk that can populate the gut and help to digest the lactose. It's not that your genes change, mm -hmm. but you are affecting the flora of your gut yeah. in a way that changes your ability to digest lactose. Now, how many people would like to be able to digest lactose? That's incredible. And most people know that with cheese, you can digest the cheese because most of the lactose is cut out in the fermentation. But mm -hmm. what if you wanted milk or something, or your kid wants to have milk with cereal? I think a lot of kids get given plant-based milks, which are problematic for children for a variety of reasons. Many contain thickening agents like carrageenan or seed oils when they could be given raw milk if the parents decide and are able to get that from a reputable source. So your first question is probably the most important question. Why is it controversial? It's clearly beneficial. Sourcing matters. Mm -hmm. And over time, go figure. There have been some contaminants in raw milk and people have gotten sick. And I think that people have died, but people have also died from pasteurized milk. I think in 1984, there was a huge outbreak of salmonella and pasteurized milk. You can check me on the date, but it's thereabouts. And over 200,000 people got sick. And I think there were many deaths from pasteurized milk. So on whole, I, I think that there are far more deaths from pasteurized milk than raw milk. Mm -hmm. A lot less people drink raw milk than pasteurized milk. But I think that when it's done properly, and there are right. more farms doing this, raw milk can be a very powerful tool for humans, potentially even a very unique intervention that we don't see other ways, right? Mm -hmm. So all of us hope that we were breastfed by mothers that were doing good things and that helped shape our gut microbiome, but some of us were not, or some of us are affected by antibiotics or other toxins from our guts. There's a compelling hypothesis or idea for me that could raw milk from mammals be a way to potentially repopulate or heal the human gut 
in a unique way. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult thing to test with science, but I think the epidemiology and the studies we have would suggest it's at least a possibility. But it's just an interesting thing because if you suggest that you should drink your wife's breast milk or you know another human's breast milk, you'll get deleted from Instagram. I mean, it's like you it's like completely taboo, Will, because you're right wing. I mean, <laughs> I have a friend here in Costa Rica who had a baby and she posted something about her friends drinking her breast milk and Instagram <laughs> took her account down for a week. It's like, she's a, she's a sovereign human. Right. And And the crazy crap that they put out on Instagram and that is what's taken down. It's just, I don't think she even showed her, she didn't show her boo or a nipple. I mean, mean, those are all over Instagram anyway, but yeah, it was just here. You're drinking my breast milk. Why is that? Why can't you talk about that on Instagram? I'm not suggesting, I mean, it's kind of a strange thing for us. I don't know if humans need to drink other humans breast milk. It makes a lot of sense evolutionarily. I've never seen it in practice, but Certainly, if you have a child and you can't breastfeed, women are in these networks where other women can provide breast milk to your child. So yeah, that's completely reasonable and very healthy for the child. I don't understand why it's completely taboo to even show or suggest kind of in a joking fashion, right. like, hey, I tried yeah. breast milk from a human. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it makes you wonder why certain things are, I mean, because it yeah. is the strangest things are on social media, but you know, it is a known fact that only right wingers drink other people's breast milk. So that's, that's, that is true. And, and, and let's just, <laughs> let's just, maybe let's just state this, like social media is generally captured other than X or Twitter. It's mostly left wing. And that's just, that's not a political statement. That's just a statement of truth. Mm-hmm. So I and can understand. And the, and the problem is it's authoritarian. It's like, it's, we can't call it misinformation or free speech. It, it is selective ordained speech versus, you know, I think it's a problem no matter what, if it's political, not political, whatever. Why are we threatened by other people's ideas? Even if they're crazy, even if you wouldn't do them. Why is that so scary for people? I don't know. It's become a scary thing. I think that, yeah. It's a great thing what Elon's done with Twitter X, but there's a lot of stuff on there that people don't even want to see anymore, but they want free speech. And I think that you should allow free speech, even from people you don't like. I mean, there was a great episode of Rogan's podcast a while ago with Ira Glassman, the previous head of the ACLU. Yeah. He talked about, he talked about, I think it was neo-Nazis walking right down the street in a town and and they said, yeah, you can do it. Yeah. You don't agree with what you're saying. It's, it's odious and. That's that's a crazy thing is that being left wing, being progressive, has always been standing up for people like the ACLU, as you mentioned, always stood up for people, even the worst people, like you said, I mean, the most neo-Nazis not advocating for them, but they're like, you don't like, we have to protect all speech. Otherwise it's going to be disintegrating to the the, the fabric of a free society. It is. It's crazy, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a tangent. And you know what? We, we got that from drinking other people's breast milk. We, we went on that tangent. <laughs> My friend, so before we go, I want to get into your art of being well. This is Dr. Paul Saladino's art of being well. What's the worst tasting healthy food that you still have? Not because of taste. It tastes disgusting, but you will have it because of the amazing health science behind it. Um, what tastes bad? You know what? You know what's funny, Will, is that I don't think that there's not a lot of foods that I eat that taste bad. When I first started eating liver, I didn't like the taste at all, mm-hmm. but it grew on me and I now like the taste and can eat it. The texture sometimes weirds me out and that's why I'll do it frozen or desiccated capsules like hardened soil or something. But I think it, you know, ironically, it probably was liver, but not anymore. That and is I ironic. Think, you know, I mean, I mean, some of the organs get pretty 
get pretty intense. Well, that's why, why we do... can get them in capsule form. I, that's, I, I get that's, that's the beauty of like hardened soil. It's like, yeah. I mean, if you ever try to eat a pancreas, I mean, although pancreas can be sweetbreads, if you cook it, it's good, but raw pancreas, not so good. Raw, I mean, I don't think there's any way to eat spleen that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Probably just get it in desiccated form. Yeah. The most, the most bioavailable form of iron I'm aware of. Yeah. The yeah. most iron. I love it. Another ironic thing that came to mind through today's conversation is Dr. Paul Saladino eats more carbohydrates than vegans do. That's the ultimate irony there. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I don't know how many carbohydrates a fruitarian would eat, but I give them a run. You're out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, Look, yeah, it's, it's true, man. We, just, I, we brought about unity in today's conversation. Really yeah, yeah, you guys yeah. are all doing the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just like a fruitarian who eats yeah. a lot of meat and organs and animal fat. Yeah. Right. Come and on. Come, come together. Fine. Find yeah. the commonality. <laughs> Similar. Uh, what is, what's your dream vacation? You're probably living it right now, but what, what would be your answer? Yeah, I'm living it. I'm, <laughs> I'm living it. I mean, that's the reason I live in Costa Rica. And I, I think that it's, the reason I moved away from Austin. So I moved to Austin in 2020, 2020, moved there to create community, to start Heart and Soil, which is this desiccated organ company. And after about seven or eight months, I just felt like I was missing adventure. I love to surf. I love to be in the ocean. I like sun and warmth. And I, at that time I traveled to Africa and spent time with the Hadza. I think we've talked about that in the yeah. past. And on the way back, on the way back, I ended up in Costa Rica and I've kind of just stayed. So I've chosen to carve out a life in a third world country, you know, before my, before my life in Costa Rica sounds unobtainable to you realize that most people in Costa Rica work for less than $5 an hour and anyone can live here. If you're willing to deal with power that goes out occasionally, spotty internet sometimes, but what you get is clean air. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of cell towers. If you care about that kind of thing, uh, a lot of sun and good waves. Now, I'm very fortunate to live in a house, which is basically like a tree house, but it's this type of life is attainable for more people than they think. And I think my dream vacation would be somewhere just like this, somewhere warm, mm-hmm. with good waves that are not crowded with people I care about. Uh, that's clean, mm-hmm. not too crowded. I love it. So my friend, I know you have some exciting things coming out with from Heart and Soil and we love it at the clinic. We recommend it to patients. Do you have a protein powder coming out? Can you talk about that? And Tell everybody where they can go to learn about your work and Heart and Soil's work. Yeah, so it's super exciting. I think that though I've been critical of protein powders in the past, I think there's a time and a place for protein powders. And so with Heart and Soil, I I talked to the team and I said, let's develop a protein powder, but let's make it different because there is not a protein powder on the market that I would take. So we did it and this is super exciting. And I see the utility of protein powders kind of for those moments where you don't have time to make yeah. food. Convenience. 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 Yeah. But what are the problems that I have? I'll just tell you briefly. So the problems I have with protein powders are things like silicon dioxide. So excipients that can damage the gut. I'm not a fan of stevia. I think that these artificial sweeteners, we know they change the gut microbiome. So I wanted to make something without stevia. I obviously wanted to make something without processed sugar. And I wanted to make something that was simple and clean. So what we did was we made a protein that's like, it's a very simple and clean, unflavored whey protein. It's the highest quality whey protein I could find because the quality matters. And I've seen so many protein powders that have significant contaminants, whether it's heavy metals or BPA, but we also put colostrum, which is the first milk from cows. So we have a desiccated colostrum from hardened soil. And we put this special type of collagen called Colomex or in there. And it's, it's from trachea and scapular cartilage. And trachea's cartilage has been studied. It's really interesting. It's been studied in 
found in wound healing. There's some peptide or protein or something in this trachea cartilage that is helpful with wound healing. There's a surgeon named John Putin. So we put this special type of collagen along with this colostrum and this, the finest whey protein we could find with no other garbage. So it's a super simple, there's a few more ingredients in a whey protein. And then the other thing, because whey protein is very valuable, it's super high biological value. It's shown to increase glutathione in humans. The good thing about hardened soil is we're really proud of the fact that it's glass bottles mm. because I didn't want to make things in plastic. So then, I mean, part of the problem with creative protein powder was like, how do we package it? Because I think we like to tell the story of the fact that we don't use plastic bottles and that they're glass bottles, which has created challenges in shipping, but we figured it out. So we, we have this like spe very special packaging for the protein powder. That's not plastic. It's different than any other protein on the market. And the packaging is completely unique too. So it looks really cool. And it's something that I would eat and I would take, which is my metric with anything for any of the companies that I, that I create is I want something that I would take. So I'm super excited about the protein powder to be out. Now, having said that, I'll say that I think that whole food is what I eat most of the time and what I think people should be eating most of the time. But I think that there is a time and a place for protein powder. Just be aware that a lot of stuff on the market is pretty low quality mm -hmm. and you want to check the quality and make sure that there aren't funky ingredients in there, which cause problems. That's, that was the vision for the protein powder. It might be so niche that nobody's going to be interested, but that was the way I wanted to create it like very mm -hmm. intentionally. And people can just go to heartandsoil.co.co to find all the stuff we make, desiccated organs. I'm, I hope, I'm so glad you recommend it to your, to your patients, Will, and I, I hope they find benefit. I think, I know they will. Again, I think organs are valuable for humans and if you can get them fresh, do that. And if you find the desiccated thing more convenient, we wanted to make like the best thing that we could, something that I would be proud of to give to my family. So that's what's going on there. And then people can find me just Paul Saladino MD on all the socials. Love it. Thanks for coming on my friend. Appreciate you. Come back anytime. Thanks for having me on brother. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.